This is Play by Playcast. Is that faster than a greyhound? The podcast about play by play guys. For play by play guys, by I'm told, a play by play guy. It's a bold strategy, Cotton. Let's see if it pays off for him. Now, here's the host of Play by Playcast, Todd Bodet. <laughs> Wait, the Motel 6 guy? We'll leave the light on for you. No, Joel Godet. Joe Godet. Joel. Joe. Joel? Joel, with an L. Okay. Here's your host, Joel Godet. Don't worry, nobody's listening anyway. All right, 136 episodes of Play by Playcast now. Thanks as always for the subscribe, the stream, the download. Welcome back in. My name is Joel Godet. This is the podcast about play by play broadcasters for play by play broadcasters, hosted by a play by play broadcaster, a professional development podcast that dives into the tips, tricks, experience, stories, process, and preparation of some of the biggest and best play by play announcers in the business. If you missed last week's episode, or if you're new to the pod, uh, episode 135 with Anne Marie Anderson, Steve Wolf, color analyst for CBS Sports Network, was with us on episode number 134. Robert Ford of the Houston Astros was 133. 132 was Rafael Hernandez Brito, still one of my favorite conversations, uh, the Spanish voice of the Cleveland Browns and Cleveland Cavaliers. Uh, If you've missed any episode, please do scroll through. Uh, They're all available all the way back to episode one with Carter Blackburn from CBS. Uh, As always, you can find us on social media at PXPCast. I'm at Joel Godet, or my email uh, is J-G-O-D-E-T-T at B-S-U dot E-D-U. And I'm very tired. Let's just start with that. Uh, (laughs) I've got, this week hasn't been that bad, but it's about to get bananas. Um, If you're listening to this on time, I am about to hop on a plane and fly to Philadelphia this weekend a day early because of a snowstorm, not in Philadelphia, but in Indianapolis, and I have to make sure I get out. Uh, So um, leaving a day early to go broadcast LaSalle St. Joe's on Sunday for CBS Sports Network, and I come back Monday morning, Tuesday men's basketball game on E3, Wednesday women's basketball game on E3, Thursday drive to Ypsilanti, Michigan for women's gymnastics on ESPN3. Friday, team bus to Athens, Ohio for men's basketball against the Ohio Bobcats on the radio Saturday. Don't ask what comes after that. I really am not sure, but I think it's still in January. Uh, It's this time of year, man. This is exactly... We tell ourselves this is what we're in it for. (laughs) For for the two hours that the game is happening, this is what we're in it for. For the time I'm not sleeping, sometimes I question myself. But it should be a lot of fun uh, covering a bunch of different teams and a bunch of different places in a a couple of different sports. Uh, Really looking forward to what lies ahead. That being said, I have no idea who's going to be on this podcast next week. I do know who's on it this week, though. And it's Brendan Burke from the New York Islanders. And uh, one of the... A, best hockey voices, but B, also up-and-coming hockey voices. Um, still young. In his mid-30s, he was born in 1984, July 8th of 1984. Uh, a guy that came up through the ranks in the minors of both baseball and then eventually hockey, was in the AHL. The Islanders' job opened on television. He applied, and he got it. And he'll take us through the entire process of what it's like auditioning for an NHL job and what it's like working in market number one um, and doing television at that level and uh, doing network television now as well because he does hockey uh, for NBC Sports as well. So uh, a whole different bunch of avenues to go down with Brendan as far as navigating his way through this uh, industry. Uh, But we'll talk the craft too. We'll talk uh, broadcasting hockey, which Doc Emmerich words and descriptors he likes best. 
um, what makes Doc so good, and uh, we'll talk a little bit about what makes uh, himself so good, and watching his own stuff back, and learning and growing. Uh, Where we start, though, is actually not with hockey. We start with Brendan Burke's baseball career, because if you Google search Brendan Burke, and I don't know how far I dug, but I found it relatively easily, um, you'll find a story about his minor league baseball days. We've all done crazy things in the minors. It's minor league baseball. Uh, There's always wacky promotions, which in Brendan Burke's case at one point involved broadcasting a game from a bed on the concourse. Why not? It's one of the quirks of the biz. (laughs) Brendan Burke joins us this week on PXP cast. We'll start with minor league baseball. I found this in my research and I'm just curious because I've worked in minor league baseball too. Um, you broadcast a game from a like a mattress or a bed that a sponsor installed or what? <laughs> yeah, it was uh, a crazy concept. Uh, I don't remember if it was my first or second year in Lakewood. Uh, you know, it's single A baseball and everybody's looking to sell sponsorship dollars. And uh, it was a Sleepy's mattress. And uh, they decided that they wanted to put it on the concourse. And the crazy idea was to have us broadcast from a bed sitting on it uh you know a fully it wasn't just a mattress it looked like it would it would be in your bedroom and uh we sat there uh i sat there along uh with uh, my intern at the time and we did the game as if it were normal from a, i mean a terrible vantage point it was too low and uncomfortable and you know it's like sitting on a bleacher you can't lean back it wasn't like i was laying in the bed uh just kind of sitting on the side of it trying to broadcast the game and i don't necessarily know if people knew what was happening but uh it, it certainly got some attention so i guess i guess it was uh it, it achieved the desired effect uh, at least from a sponsorship standpoint for sleepy the the things we all do i had a sales guy come up to me once and say can you read this live read as dracula um, <laughs> and i was like i was like no no i i, I can't i'm sorry uh, yeah. yeah um what i What's minor league hockey like? Uh, is it anything like the quirks we all envision with minor league baseball? Because I've never been in that realm. Um, kind of take me on those those early steps of your, your journey through uh, the minor league hockey rinks. Yeah, so I, I started in Wheeling, West Virginia. And, um, you know, minor league hockey is interesting because, uh, and it's the same way in minor league baseball, but you have... Um, I guess you have organizations and, and cities and, and franchises and buildings that are way nicer and more advanced than some of the others. Uh, you know, I, I was in Willing, West Virginia, which wasn't at the top of the list, you know, but then you go uh, to Charlotte, North Carolina, where they're sharing the building with uh, with the NBA team. And it's like, oh, boy, they've got a, a much different life over here at the ECHL. So I, I think the parity between the two, uh, I mean, and I saw that in the South Atlantic League or even in, in uh, the New York Penn League when I was with the Batavia Muck Dogs. It was like Batavia was a, you know, a 2000 seat stadium in the middle of nowhere. Um, you know, that, that had trouble filling half of it. And then you'd go to, you know, Aberdeen where they've got this beautiful ballpark that's always full. And so, um, you know, hockey's a lot like that. And, and it's a little different than baseball because it's not constant. It's not every day. It's a lot more back and forth. You don't really unpack when you get to the hotel because it's just a one night stay, uh, you know, and, and you kind of make your way through it. And I was, I was fortunate enough to land in the ECHL level at, at 22 right out of college. And I had no, no clue what I was doing. Uh, none. So, uh, you know, you just you just kind of feel your way through it because uh, you know when you're you're the broadcaster, you're usually replacing a guy that's no longer there. So there's not really anybody else in the organization that knows what you should be doing. Uh, and so I was fortunate enough to land in a spot where they kind of let me feel my way through it. Uh, and you're working the, the PR and the media side. And I remember uh, we went to our first game, and 
somebody asked me for, you know, the, the bios for the, the wheeling nailers players. And I was like, <laughs> I didn't make those. Uh, so the next game I had to put them all together. Uh, you know, just things like that, where I, I had no idea what I was getting into. And I, and I got hired really late. I got hired. Uh, I, I showed up in wheeling just a few days before the first game. And so I, I kind of had to hit the ground running and, uh, you know, really feel my way through it. How did you wind up in, in hockey? Where did the, the breaking point come? And I know hockey was that you played it growing up and I, I know you've said that's the direction you wanted to go, but where did it become that hockey was the bread and butter and baseball got left? Um, when I got the job in Peoria in the American Hockey League, uh, you know, when I first got out of school, I, I was doing um, ECHL hockey and, and single A baseball in the South Atlantic League. And um, I was, I was happy doing both of those and it just got to, I kind of had that feeling where the next job that I get was probably not going to let me um, just leave here and go do another sport. And so uh, that opportunity came with with Peoria in in 2008 uh, in the American Hockey League. And so I had a choice between, um, you know, kind of staying in in the low level minor leagues and doing both sports or just taking a full time job in Illinois um, and, and, you know, a step below the NHL. And and I figured that was, uh, you know, the best bet for me in a full time job and, you know, benefits and all that stuff. And so um, hockey kind of took me with it more than I chose it. Uh, it kind of chose me. If if I had gotten a triple A baseball job, you know, that off season, I would have gone with that. I mean, that's really how it, how it went for me. And uh, you know, I'm pretty fortunate how it's all worked out. And then just kind of got carried to Utica in some respects too, right? Uh, you know what? It, it looks like that on paper because the team was, was sold by the blues in Peoria and it folded up shop. And then, uh, you know, Vancouver bought the franchise and put it in Utica, but I was oh, not, so you, I was not along for the sale. Yeah. Oh, wow, so okay. I was, I was on unemployment for a month, uh, you know, kind of waiting for my next job because it wasn't immediate when, when they announced that, that Peoria was folding, they hadn't announced what Vancouver was doing with the team yet. And so I was literally sitting there waiting for them to put it somewhere, hoping it would be in the United States because if it was in Canada, I'd have really little chance of getting that job. But I was pretty confident that as long as they kept it in the U.S., I was going to be able to convince them that I was the best guy for the job because it was my job. Um, and then on top of that, and on top of that, they put it in Utica, New York, uh, which is actually where my wife is from. And so it was her hometown. And so I had a connection to the area. And so I was kind of able to sell myself on a number of different fronts uh, that I was the best guy for the job. So, uh, yeah, no, I, it, I, I was not part of the sale. I wound up uh, having to reapply and, and get my job back. We have conversations on this podcast from time to time with people about um, balancing the work life aspect of what we do, especially when you're coming up the ranks. Um, that, I imagine, was like the best scenario possible for you, though, because to look at your wife and say, listen, we're going to have to move but you might be okay with this one probably makes it a little easier. Yeah. You know, we had done long distance for five years. Uh, She was finishing up nursing school where she couldn't leave where she was. And and obviously I was entrenched. She was in New Jersey and I was in Illinois. And so it it made it hard and and was, was difficult for a long time. And um, she moved out to Illinois right before we got married. And, uh, and so she had only been there for a year and it was time for us to pack up and go somewhere else and not really knowing where we were going. And, you know, we were hitting that point, um, that point in our lives where, you know, we were starting to talk about kids and, and, and it, it wound up being a great situation where her parents still live there. And so it was nice to go back and, and be near family when we went through all that. Um, you know, but we had some conversations uh, before I even, before I knew that the, the team, the franchise was going to be moved to Utica and there would be an AHL opportunity in her hometown. Um, you know, we had conversations about um, just trying to figure out what the best thing was. And, and maybe that was not, 
trying to follow an AHL franchise. Maybe that was, you know, seeing if I can freelance and, and get some other work and we can move somewhere else or we can stay where we were or whatever it was. And so we were kind of exploring a lot of different opportunities. And then when they took the franchise and they put it in Utica, I was like, all right, I probably should go get that job because that would make everybody happy. And, uh, you know, we spent three good years there and, and, and wound up, uh, you know, moving on, but it was, uh, it, it worked out pretty well, but it's, it's amazing how it all worked out because it wasn't, it wasn't planned that way. That's for sure. You know, I, I, Loved the quote that I saw from you, too. Um, once you're in Utica and you, you've spent three years there and the Islanders job comes open um, and it was something to the effect of, uh, you know, it's market number one. It's the NHL and I'm a radio guy in the in the in the AHL and I'm applying for a, a TV job in the NHL in New York City. Um, like it's very easy to brush me off as a candidate. Uh, how did you take me through your thought process of you know what, this is the right job for me and I'm going to go get it. You know, I, I mean, I've been a guy that, you know, for the last five years, uh, maybe even longer than that, ever since I got to the American League, any NHL job that opens, everybody jumps, right? Whether you're qualified or not, um, you just kind of roll your dice. And so um, I've been doing college football with Fox Sports on television um, for, I guess, three or four years, maybe even five. Um Three. I had done it for three years because I, I, I got the college football stuff the same year I moved to Utica. So I've been doing college football on, on television for three years. So I had some some national television exposure and experience um, that I could say, hey, this isn't hockey. But I have a tape of me doing, you know, big time, big 12 college football games on television. Sure. Um, and I have 10 years worth of, of radio tapes uh, that you can use as well. And uh, I had done a game or two for the Big Ten Network. So I, I had enough little things where I could, I could just show them that I, I think I was capable of doing the job. Um, but, but like I said, I mean, you, you could brush me off. I mean, this is, you look at the resume together, this guy's a radio guy in, in Utica, New York, you know, we're, we're talking about a much bigger job here, but I was able to, uh, you know, put those materials together and, and have some strong references. I mean, I had, I, I used every bullet that I could fire at this job. I, I called in every favor I had um, and, and I wasn't looking for them to help me get the job. I was just looking for some credibility for them to take me seriously and, sure. to, and to, to actually listen because, you know, it, I, I was proud of what I had done. I was confident in my abilities and confident in my tape that if they just listened to it with an open ear and, and didn't look at my resume and just said, hey, is this guy a good broadcaster, that it would stack up there with everybody else they were talking to. Um, and so I, I wanted that and I got that. I'd always said, just get me in a room with these people. Just just get me an interview because – you know, that way you can sell yourself. Um, and that's, that's a lot easier than, than just blind faith of somebody, you know, liking the way you sound and, and moving from there. And, and I never had a single NHL uh, interview job in, in 10 years. I had never gotten a single interview, not face to face. I'd had some good conversations. Um, I had had some close calls where I was a finalist, but they didn't even bother talking to me. Um, but this was the first time I had gotten in a room with uh, with anybody making the decision about who would who would be the next voice of the Islanders. It was the first time an NHL team or a uh, network had talked to me, you know, face to face, and um, made it through the first interview process, which I think was at ten, and then down to an audition process, which it was I believe was at five. They auditioned five different people for the job, and so um, you know you you get to a point where I had done ten years worth of work to get into a room where I was going to be judged on. 10 minutes of play-by-play at nine o'clock in the morning on a monitor in a studio in the middle of July. 
And it was a very unnatural setting to call a hockey game in it. And it's kind of unnerving to think that no matter what you've done before this, it all rides on what you're going to do in the next 10 minutes. Um, but apparently I didn't screw it up too badly. Yeah. So I'm curious about that in, in, a, in, a, in a second. But the first part of that is tell me what that room is like when you walk into that room for the first time. Um, what's it feel like and, and how do you present yourself? Yeah, it, it, it's a weird, you know, you're, you're as nervous as could possibly be. And that's the last thing you want to, you want them to feel. Mm. So you almost have to fake the confidence that you, you're supposed to have in that moment. Um, you know, and, and it's, it's a weird thing because what, what are they looking for? Cause everything's different, right? Every job is different. You don't know what the right answer is. Um, and, and, and I didn't even know what they were going to ask. I mean, and, and they asked, you know, questions about like my broadcasting philosophy and things like that, which I think everybody has internally, but to actually think about it and then spit it out. Yeah, you don't put it down uh, on paper a lot. Yeah, right. Exactly. It's like, I, I mean, I, if I kind of walk through how I think about a broadcast, I can put it together, but I was not prepared for a question <laughs> like that. Let me tell you, um, you know, when they asked about influences and people I listen to or people I emulate and things like that, where it was. Um, I, I don't know what they were looking for. And, and so you're just, you leave there and you go, I don't, I don't know how I did. I really don't. Um, you know, and it, but a lot of it is just to get to know you as a person because, you know, at an NHL job, um, and especially for a, an organization like MSG networks, it's you're representing, you know, I'm representing the Islanders in MSG every time I go on the air and every time I go out in public. Um, so they want to be confident in the person you are on top of your ability as a broadcaster. So, uh, I think they just wanted to make sure that, you know, that, that I was somebody that they were comfortable with moving forward in the process in that first conversation. Um, and, and obviously they were, they were trying to chop down their list from, from 10 to something a little more manageable. Um, but it was, uh, it was, it was, uh, it was a nerve wracking experience, but, um, I'm glad I only had to do it once. Uh, tell me about the, uh, the demo part of that too. Uh, like how, how much, do they tell you what it is ahead of time? How much prep do you get? Or do they sit you down and say, call a hockey game? Yeah, no, it, it was, it was a little more planned out. I had about a week's notice that I was going to do the game. And then I had a few days notice of um, the rosters. They didn't want to tell you what game it was because they didn't want people watching it. I think, um, you know, ahead of time. To kind probably of know for the better happen. in some ways. No, for sure. And, and and so they give me the rosters and it was an Islander Columbus game from from January, which um, I figured out on my own based on the rosters. It's really not that difficult. And what I did was to prepare was uh, I downloaded the game notes for that game as if it was the night before. Um, you know, I, I sat down and, and studied them. So I had a little bit of context because, you know, broadcasting is, is nothing without context, right? I can, anybody can tell you who moves the puck around, but it's the other things that makes it an interesting broadcast. So I prepared just like a regular game, um, you know, knowing what their records were and things like that, things that I, I wasn't supposed to know they were going to give us the game notes that morning. Um, and I had watched every Islander Columbus game from that season, except for the one that I was going to do. Hmm. because I didn't, I didn't want to know what was going to happen. Yeah, That's no, not no. a natural call. So I, I intentionally didn't watch that game because I didn't want to see it. Um, so I just kind of got familiar with the names and, and, you know, the Jersey numbers and things like that. Um, and, and just had a basic idea of what the context of the season was and then try to make it as normal as possible and, and just kind of get into the flow. And, and, you know, for anybody that's a broadcaster listening to this, July 5th is the day that I, I, I did that audition which means I hadn't called a hockey game in months. And so it takes you a little bit to get into the flow. And I remember um, 
I, I went in there and I did, I want to say it was the first two segments. So, you know, you get the 14 minute break is the first commercial. And then the 10 minute break is the second commercial in, a, in an NHL game. And I did those first two segments and we went to commercial, if you will, um, after that second segment. And I was like, Oh, all right, good. Now I feel good. Let's, let's go. And they're like, all right, thanks for coming in. I was like, <laughs> Oh man. Like I finally got comfortable. And then they were like, all right, well, that's it. We're done. I was like, Oh boy. So, um, no, it was, it was very unnatural, um, and, and very challenging, but I approached it the best way that I could. Um, and, and you know, and it was, a lot of it was, was, I wasn't alone. I was with, I was with Butch Goring, who's, who's now my partner, my analyst. Mm. Uh, and, and he came in and auditioned everybody. And so it was, uh, you know, it was how I worked with him and the different things. So I didn't have to carry the whole broadcast. It was, it was a normal show. Um, but I just kind of let him do his thing and, and plugged in around it. And that's what I'm still doing. I was not intimidating at all to say like, all right, no, I, it, it's like meeting your girlfriend's parents. And it's like, I don't have to impress <laughs> yeah. her. I have to impress them because like, if they don't like me, it's all over. Yeah. You know, and it's one of those things where it's, it's just, it's just the two of you in the room, but you know, there's a lot of people watching behind that mirror, right? Like the, it's, it's, uh-huh. it's, 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 you know, like they're all in the control room, they're all watching. And then what they, what they did was that, you know, they made copies of it and they, they handed it out to different people in the, within the organization and oh, within goodness. MSG and got input from other people. And I don't know if they put it to a vote or whatever, but uh, you know, I, it certainly was something that, that a lot of people had, had an ear on and, and you wanted to make a good impression because a lot of people it was all right here's the top three watch these tapes tell us what you think you know and, and that's where that's where it went uh, so if that's not pressure enough in one instance uh what is it like to be a broadcaster in media market number one uh particularly a younger guy who's coming up from the minor leagues where everybody is looking to see what you're going to do um How's that feel? Yeah, no, I mean, New York is a weird spot because you're right. I mean, most people that come into the New York market are coming from another market or are coming from another major league market, I should say. Or just from New uh, York. <laughs> yeah, or, 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 or exactly. You're, you're exactly right. Or they just stuck it out in New York City and, and worked their way up the ranks. And, um, you know, the, this area is uh, it, it's interesting. You know, like you, you look at markets like Boston and Chicago and nothing against them, but they, their broadcasters have a certain feel to them. They are more, I don't want to call them homers, but they're certainly, you know, fan centric when it comes to the way they broadcast the game. New York's not like that. It, you can't lie to New York fans. Uh, you can't fluff it. it you, if you're not honest, they'll eat you alive. And so you, you just kind of come in and, and my philosophy was, and I got some great advice uh, before the first time I ever went on the air with the Islanders. Uh, I got a call from Howie Rose, who's the guy I took over for. And he called me, and it was it was two hours before I went on the air, and I answered my phone. And his one piece of advice to me, which I took to heart, was don't act like you're filling in for anybody. This is your job. And it, it just kind of changed my mindset a little bit of, hey, you're not filling in for Howie Rose until he gets back. You're not just hanging out for a little while. Like, this is your gig. And so – I kind of attacked it head on and I made the conscious decision to not be afraid to act like I had been here my whole life. Um, Because at the end of the day, the people watching the game, the people listening to me, they don't care that I'm new. They don't care that I was 32 years old. They don't care about anything other than watching the Islanders and enjoying the broadcast. That's what they want. That's what they've always gotten. And that shouldn't change just because Howie's gone and I stepped in. And so I just kind of acted as if I had been here forever and I wasn't afraid to talk about things that I wasn't here for as if I was here for them because they don't care that I'm new. They care about their Islanders. And that's, that's the most important thing. And so I just tried to, to plug myself in as best I could. Um, 
it seemed to work. And I had some, I had some exposure to the New York media market for, for my whole life. And I grew up, my dad was uh, the Yankee beat writer for a good chunk of my childhood. And I, and I know a lot of the, the, the old guard here in New York and they were very accepting to me. And I had, you know, plenty of people to vouch for me, uh, w- which certainly helps and carries a lot of weight when you have, you know, people like Mike Breen and, and Kenny Albert and Sam Rosen and, and Howie Rose himself were willing to say, Hey, you guys got a good one. You know, Islanders fans, you know, enjoy him. He might be young, but he, he knows what he's doing. To have those kind of people say those kind of things about me, uh, you know, you can't put a price on, on what that did for me and my comfort level here. And I think with Islanders fans, comfort level with me. Yeah, tell me about your dad a little bit. Um, and this is going to be like a ridiculously broad question. But uh, having someone who, A, was in that market, but B, who, who obviously did his job at a very high level and it's different than yours. Um, but are there are there things that you just that were inherent to who you are and how you approached this, uh, even when you went to Ithaca, um, just because you were, you were around him in terms of the way he interacted with athletes or the way that he interviewed or any types of those things that, that maybe we take for granted sometimes. Yeah. I mean, I think it was just, you know, the, the sports media world to me was normal. I mean, I didn't, uh, I didn't, go to a Yankee game where I didn't park in the player parking lot and walk in before the gates opened until I was in high school. I mean, it, it, and, and I didn't, and I didn't know that was weird. Like I remember the first time I went to a game with my girlfriend in high school and her family took me and we parked somewhere on Jerome Avenue and walked in through the outfield. I'm like, what, what planet are we on? Like, this is bananas. And, and, and it never really dawned on me how fortunate I was as a kid until I started getting other experiences, you know, and I, I've been to, uh, you know, my birthday's in the middle of July, and my dad, for for a long time, would volunteer to work the the Major League Baseball All Star Game and let me tag along. And I've been to five All Star games, and and would go with him to all the events. And you know, I was ten years old in, in Texas when the All Star Gala was at uh, Six Flags Over Texas, where they rented out the whole park for Major League Baseball. And I'm riding roller coasters with Mike Piazza, and like I had a I had a, some incredible experiences because of you know my dad and his job. And so it was just this whole world that a lot of people don't get to see until they crack their way into it. I mean, I had seen it my whole life. Uh, you know, I, I, I you know, it, it's, it, it, and so it, it just kind of, I don't know if it, if it clicked and you say that, that inherent knowledge, it was just kind of like, this was just how it works. This is how I go to work. This is, it, it was my first game, my first baseball game. And, you know, I, I'm in hockey now. And we talked about the, the changeover, but, mm. uh, when I was a kid, I wanted to be a baseball guy. I mean, my dad was a baseball writer. Uh, my first exposure to broadcasting was was sitting in between John Sterling and Michael Kay when they did games on radio at Fenway Park, just sitting between them watching a game and then realizing they got paid to do that. And that's how I decided I wanted to be a broadcaster. Um, but I remember my first baseball game at Ithaca College. I was a freshman. Finally get on the air, do a little play-by-play, and I was brutal. I mean, it was awful. And, and you, do, you do 90s of play-by-play for a D3 college with, with very little – information to even prep and no real knowledge about how to prep for a broadcast. And so what I wound up doing is being awful for nine innings. And then I called my dad in a panic after the game, because I'm like, I wasn't good and I didn't enjoy it. And this is what I thought I was going to do with my whole life. What do I do now? And, and he goes, Hey, hold on, take a breath. That was your first game ever. And, and it just, it didn't feel like my first game because in my head, I've been doing it my whole life. And so I just expected I would be good at it and know how to do it. And he just kind of reminded me like, Hey, you may have a good feel for how this all works, 
but you've never actually done it before. And so then I put in the work and I put in the reps and I, and I spent my entire college life at, at the radio station and the TV station and at sporting events doing games and kind of got to that level and got to that comfort level. But it was something that I was, I, I was surprised at how bad I was at the beginning because of how I'd grown up my whole life thinking that this was going to be how it was. Well, let's talk about getting good at it. Um, and the first thing I'm curious about is uh, how long have you sounded like this or is that how, how have you trained your voice? Yeah, I, this is luck, really. I mean, I decided, like I said, when I wanted to be a broadcaster, I was nine years old. Trust me, I didn't sound like this at nine years old. Um, and then it was one of those Although things. I'm sure there that, are some that have, like the movie guy, I'm sure was like. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it, it, you know, I, I was never one of those guys where it was like, oh, my God, listen to that guy's voice. Um, and because and I, I still do that to people. I'm like, man, I would I would trade you for your voice in a heartbeat. Um, but you just kind of, uh, it, I was in college, same thing, where I, I never really realized it. And then I was working with the, the station manager who was a senior when I was a freshman and uh, she had me read some stuff. And then I was like, you know, you're, you're still in that phase where you hear your voice back on recording and you're like, you know, like the old answering machine message. It's just like, oh, I don't want to hear that. <laughs> um, and so I kind of cringed at it and she's like, why are you cringing? And I'm like, I just, I, I just don't really like the sound of my voice. And she kind of, she hit a couple of buttons on the computer and, and turned up the, the speakers a little bit. She goes, no, listen, listen to the bass in your voice. And so she, she turned it up and hit it again. And I was like, yeah, okay. I can hear that. And, and so then I was just a little more in tune with what quality my voice brought um, from that on. And, and, and I started to use that a little bit somehow. And, and then they started using my voice for, you know, you were listening to 92 WICB. And like, then it was just on the radio all the time. Like I would turn on my car and I'd be hit in the face with my own voice. And I was like, all right, this is, this is kind of cool. And so it's it just kind of progressed from there, but it's not, I don't, I don't think I have a, a big fake radio voice. It's just kind of uh, what naturally become my voice. And, and, and it's, I'm very fortunate to, to have lucked into not only having the voice to, to match my, my desired profession, um, but just the, you know, the ability to, to kind of use it to its, the best of its ability. What makes good hockey play-by-play? Um, and I mean, like beyond the time and score, puck location, who's on the ice, like what separates uh, whoever you want to say is good from Mike Emmerich? Yeah, um, energy, passion, emotion. It's those, you know, hockey's a very, um, you know, emotional game it's non-stop it's energy it's it's you're on the edge of your seat the whole game there's no natural breaks in the game if they happen they happen but you can go for 20 minutes without a whistle if, if the game dictates it um and so being able to match the energy level of what's going on on the ice and bringing that through the tv or the radio i i think is what it is because when you when you watch a hockey game in the building there's nothing like it uh you know your heart's racing it's it's as fast as as can be and the idea is you want the people at home sitting there watching the game to feel those same things. And you don't get that with the game on mute. You just don't, it just doesn't happen. But, you know, through, through the sound of the crowd and, and the sticks and the skates on the ice and the energy of the broadcaster, you can get them there. You can get people to jump out of their chairs at home. Um, and, and I guess the difference between hockey and other sports is you can do that three times a minute. Um, for, for various reasons, whether it's a hit, a goal, a save, a close, uh, a close call, a, a puck off the post, whatever it is, you can, you can r- bring them up and, and right back down 
you know, with just the simple inflection of a word. I mean, you don't even have to say the whole word to get people excited. You just punch a certain word at the right time. And people, mm. you know, have that, that little skip in their heart. And so I think that that's, that's the, the ability that a play-by-play guy for hockey has to have. It, it, you can be technically sound and you can get every name right. And you can have good on ice geography and point out where they are and you can do everything perfectly. But if you don't bring that element, it's no good. And, and I don't know if that's necessarily the same thing for every sport, um, you know, because I think with football, as long as you're accurate and your analyst is good, you can have an entertaining broadcast. But with hockey, that's not it. it, it with hockey, you've got to be able to match that emotion and that energy that the players have on the ice. Otherwise, it's not going to sound good. How do you control that? Um, and I, I was going to say contain, but I don't even think that's the right word based on what you just said. But I mean, like, yeah. keep it in a keep it in a listenable spot so that it, the energy doesn't jump so far off the page that it's I mean, no. it's out of control. For sure. You're right on because that's when that's the line you can't cross. Right. That's where it gets bad again. If, if you hit a certain point where you're out of control, like you are no longer in control of what your voice is doing, that's too much. Plus, at the same time, a goal in the first period of the game in October should not sound the same as a goal in the third period in the playoffs. It shouldn't. They're not the same. And so and, and, and that's not a criticism on, on anybody else, but there are a number of guys that get up to the same level, usually 11 for every goal. Um, and, and, and that's, that's not how I like to, to work. Uh, you know, it, 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 goals are goals. They're not all the same. They don't look the same. They shouldn't sound the same. Um, and, and so you have to be in control of your voice. Whenever you lose control, that's where, that's where people are going to lose interest in listening to you because that's, that's an, a, a level that you just, you just can't get to and expect people to embrace it. So, um, and, and that goes for the same thing too. Uh, and, and guys get caught. I've been caught before. You get to a point too where the goalie makes a huge save, right? So you're up. Let's just say you're at an eight because of this incredible save. And now you're at an eight and they take the puck the other way and it's a two-on-one. And you're still at an eight for a normal two-on-one because that's where the game brought you. Now you've only got one way to go and that's the nine or ten. And so you get caught in those situations. And I understand that. And sometimes that's okay because the game dictates that. But if you live in eight, nine, and 10 all the time for every goal, uh, it's going to wear you out. It's going to wear out the listener because that's the thing with hockey because of that energy, because of that emotion, when you're watching or listening, I mean, it drains you, it wears you out. And so it's the same thing with speed, just because the puck's being whipped around the ice doesn't mean you should follow it around the ice with your voice that quickly. Yes, you want to provide as much detail as possible, but if you're speaking 100 miles an hour, your listeners are going to are going to need a nap after the first period. I mean, that's just the way it is. And so you, you kind of have to find that middle ground where you just you've got to find the right pace and the right energy and the right emotion and kind of stay in control of your voice and in control of the game because you don't know where it's going to go. So you have to be able, you have to kind of build in some spots where you have the ability to go up or down, depending on where you are. I have not done hockey um, since I was in college. So I'm sure like dedicated hockey guys listening to this right now are going to jump out of their seats. Um, but what is the difference? I We, we talk a lot about radio TV differences um, on this pod, but from a hockey standpoint, I feel like if I turn on TV and I'm watching hockey, a lot of times there's there's far more description of the play than you would get if you were watching the NBA. Um, why is that, and why does it work in the, in the sport? Yeah, I mean, it's it's funny. Like, uh, you know, Doc Emmerich, who I consider the gold standard, is the best. But if, if I broadcast a game like Doc, people would tell me to shut up. 
I mean, it's just it's just one of those things that he he is who he is, and no one else is like him, and and it, no one else should be. Um, but you're right. I mean, it is way more descriptive than than any other sport on television. I think because the puck moves so fast, and because it's hard enough for me to see who has the puck, and accurately describe who that is for the people at home who, who aren't listening to me to try and accurately figure out who has the puck and where it's going. I mean, that's hard. And so um, with hockey, you have to kind of, the, the one, I, I guess I should say the one biggest difference between TV and radio and hockey is you are just as descriptive with who has the puck and what they're doing with it, but you don't have to describe where they are on the ice. And that's the biggest thing. Hockey on radio I'm not kidding that when I listen to young guys who, who send me their tapes and ask for critiques, the one thing that every hockey broadcaster needs to work on and needs to do more is their on ice geography. It's where is the puck? Because I can tell you who has the puck and what they're doing with it, but it doesn't mean anything unless they tell you where they are. I mean, if you think about it, it's more important than who has the puck on. And, and again, we're talking radio. who has the puck is less important than where the puck is on the ice. And people forget that. That is the most important thing. I can tell you that Matt Barzell and Josh Bailey have the puck. And I can go Bailey to Barzell, Barzell to Bailey. Nothing. But if I tell you, if I tell you right circle down to the goal line, back out into the slot, that tells you much more than who has the, than when I just tell you where the puck's going by who has the puck. And so that's the one thing that people need to focus on when they're on radio is where the puck is on the ice. That's the one thing that's always missing. And it's the most important part. That being said, when you flip it around the TV, I don't have to do that anymore. And so that actually opens up a lot more time for other things. And so it's, it's a small change, but it kind of gives you a little more breathing room on television where you can let the play develop a little bit. You don't have to be as precise every time the puck moves um, because you don't have to slide those constant, um, details into the broadcast on television, which I think makes for an easier call and certainly an easier listen than it is on radio because you don't have to continue to jam those things in there. How do you prep for hockey from the standpoint of uh, it's, again, I hate to make the comparison to other sports all the time, but uh, if I'm doing football, I have a chance to look down for something. Uh, I feel like that doesn't exist as much in hockey. <laughs> uh, and and we've, we've talked uh, before in previous episodes about not just making a board, but knowing what's on the board. Uh, what's your process like going into a game to make sure that like all this stuff you've written down in front of you actually matters? Yeah, most of it doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, it's, it's one of those things where if you use 10% of it, it's a good night type of thing. Sure. Um, you know, but I, I, I go through, you know, the, the same thing. I mean, I, I make the board. It's very detailed. Um, I go numerically. Um, I know a lot of guys for hockey do theirs by line, oh, which is fine. I mean, it's what everybody what everybody likes. A lot of people like to keep the lines together. Um, I do it numerically because if I'm looking for something, because as you just mentioned, you don't get a lot of time to look at your board during the game. If I'm looking for something, I need it. I need it now. And so I don't need to remember the guy's the third line left wing on top of all of this. I just need to know what number he is, you know, and so I can find that as easily as possible for me. And, and trust me, there are a hundred different ways to do it. And none of them are wrong and none of them are right. That's just the way I do it. But I try and make sure I have all their biographical information down um, in terms of, 
you know, yes, height, weight, when they were drafted, how many years they've been in the NHL. Those things are the, the standard for what I always have in front of me. If they have some interesting details about what they did before they went to the NHL or a personal story, uh, a relative that played in the NHL, things like that, I always try to have those things down. Um, and, and then I have a note usually about what they did last year because, you know, stats only mean so much without context. So if the guy's got 15 goals. That doesn't mean anything. But if I say he only had two all last season, that means a whole lot. Mm. So always knowing, you know, what that personal story is for each guy is something that I try and do. And then I, I always go through the game by game for every player before the game and kind of, hey, this guy has no goals in the last 15 or this guy's got five points in the last six games or whatever they're doing recently. Because, again, their season stats only mean so much when you're 40 games into the year. What are they doing now? Well, That's it's important. the context you talked about earlier. Yep. And, you know, and, and everything's about context. So, you know, it's the same thing with with stats. I put all the stats down on my board for, you know, the Islanders are, uh, you know, the Islanders average 28 shots a game. That's great. But it doesn't tell you anything. The Islanders average 28 shots a game, which is 15th in the NHL. So middle of the pack. That's where you get the context in. Those things are important. Just the stats by themselves. <laughs> a lot of times they mean next to nothing unless you provide that context. Um, last uh, substantive question I've got for you here. Um What's your favorite Mike Emmerich word? Oh, that's a good question. He's got so many. Like, I've heard ladled, uh, and I was like, that's genius. Yeah, well, there, there's some. I, I like when he uses sachet. I think that's a fun one. Um, you know, but there, there's some. It, it's funny. Like, there's some that you you can't use because of him. Like, he uses them, <laughs> and it's so doc that it's like, just stop trying to be doc. Um, you know, and, and it's, it's funny. Like, the one that I will use, which occasionally – uh, is paraphernalia, which he uses for goaltenders. But what uh, people of a certain generation, myself included, until really pay a little more attention, is that Doc does paraphernalia in terms of goalie equipment as an homage to Danny Gallivan, who was a broadcaster, you know, even before Doc. And so, like, it, it's funny. So I, I'm not afraid to use that because Doc's already using that as an homage to someone else. And so I'll throw that in every once in a while because I, I think those guys are, are both terrific broadcasters. So um, you'll hear me throw paraphernalia in every once in a while. Um, Brennan, how do people track you down or, or find you, whether it's uh, on social media or checking out the Islanders, uh, finding MSG? Uh, what are the ways to, to view or interact with you? Yeah, Twitter Twitter's pretty good. I'm, I'm, I try to be somewhat active on Twitter. It's Brendan M. Burke, as in Matthew, because apparently Brendan Burke is uh, taken. So um, <laughs> I don't know who that is. <laughs> I think there's a comedian in Ireland named Brendan Burke, and he gobbled up everything before I could figure it out. Probably so. not even funny. Um, no, not at all. Yeah. Uh, so, so Brendan Emberg, um, you know, MSGnetworks.com has, uh, has everything there too. If, uh, I'm, uh, probably has my Twitter feed, but you can definitely get to my MSG networks page through my Twitter as well. So that's probably the best place to get me. And, uh, yeah, I hope you do. It's, uh, it's, it's always fun. I, I, I enjoy interacting with, with everyone, especially, uh, up and broadcasters for sure. Cause I had a lot of help. I mean, no one, nobody gets where they're going in this business without a little help along the way. So I try to pay that forward as much as I can. All right, that's Brendan Burke joining us here on Play by Playcast. If you want to find him on social media, it's uh, at Brendan M. Burke, um, at NY Islanders, at MSG Networks, um, at NBCSN, or at CFB on Fox. Uh, all the different places you can find him as well. And yes, I did just literally read that off of his Twitter bio. But again, at Brendan M. Burke, if you want to give him a shout. As we always say, uh, let the guests know if you listened and you liked it. Um, it's always good for them to hear from you guys that uh, we're all getting uh, something out of these conversations and, uh, and this exercise every single week. 
Uh, with that, though, I am off to bed because I've got to go to work tomorrow, then hop a flight and uh, see my dog, uh, which is a nice side benefit to bad weather uh, when, when you have to fly into a town a little bit early. Uh, until next week, we say so long on PXP Cast. Uh, I'm Joel Gadet. Many thanks to Brendan Burke for playing Marshmallow, which means we're out. And that will do it from St. Louis, where the score is inconclusive.